podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Tom Gardner is CEO of The Motley Fool, a company he co-founded with his brother, David, in 1993. In 2014 and 2015, Glassdoor ranked The Motley Fool as the number one place to work in the United States for companies between 250 and 1,000 employees. Gardner strives to create an environment at work where employees have autonomy and where there are as few as possible mandates from the top, an environment where everyone can thrive. The Motley Fool allows employees to select some of their personal benefits, like haircuts, in addition to the standard health care and 401k package. They offer employees $200 as an incentive to ask for a raise. Tom is lead advisor on Motley Fool One, the company's all-access service. He manages the Everlasting Portfolio, which is committed to holding every investment for more than five years, and to date has beaten the market soundly since its inception. Tom is a graduate of Brown University, and in this episode, we talk about why most of us are not taught about the basics of financial literacy and The Motley Fool's commitment to helping people understand money, investing, planning for their future, and becoming financially secure in order to have more choices in life. Tom talks about the essentials, the keys to success in investing. So yes, you will get some financial advice here, as well as how The Motley Fool strives to help all its stakeholders, starting with employees, feel cared for in the long run and achieve real autonomy so that they can thrive in all aspects of their lives. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast. And if you do, I would much appreciate it if you would rate it and review it on iTunes so others are more likely to find and enjoy it too. And now, without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from a visionary CEO who's changing the world of investing and making life at work more humane while growing a productive and profitable company. It's Tom Gardner. Welcome, Tom Gardner. Hi, Tom. Dr. Friedman. Hey. What a pleasure. <laughs> uh, it's our pleasure indeed for you to be here. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk about you and your work at The Motley Fool, which has been ranked number one as a, as a place to work more than once. Uh, what's the secret sauce, Tom? Tell us um, first, like w- the initial idea, the founding of Motley Fool and its mission. Well, we, as you said, 25 years ago, Um, We started our company with the mission of helping the world invest better. Um, It is not a subject taught really at any 
at any level consistently in our educational system or anywhere in the world, um, it actually would be relatively easy to hmm. teach in a math class the basics of interest rates, credit cards, loans, savings, compound growth, and investment. Um, but it just isn't something that um, a lot of a lot of teachers have been trained to teach. We understand that. So mm-hmm. the Motley Fool exists with our with our with our colorful name to invite the world to be a part of trying to get smarter, uh, trying to get a little bit more joy out of your investments and your work life, and to try and get richer in life uh, financially and non-financially from your experiences with the Motley Fool. And so that was 25 years ago. And, you know, I would say, what's the secret sauce to to working to create a great culture? In our case, um, making every imaginable mistake (laughs) um, and studying every other organization that we um, you know, get an opportunity to hmm. be in touch with or read their financial statements, go to their website, learn about their best practices. I think that there is a huge opportunity, and it's right in line with your work, to create best practices across organizations. They won't apply across all industries, all companies' sizes, but there, there really is such a rich collection of breakthroughs that companies hmm. are um, are in the process of developing right now, and we, as investors, get the opportunity to talk to the leaders, learn from them, and then take mm-hmm. their best ideas and test them in our in our company. And that's been very, very beneficial for us. You you are truly scholars of uh, the world of organizations and finance, uh, and it's it's uh, it shows in in your results. Tell us, uh, I'm sure you never grow tired of uh, of telling people like me what your results have been, but. Uh, Please, one more time, Tom, uh, give, give, us, give us your financial results uh, at the top of our conversation so people know uh, how successful really you have been. Well, I'll say, I'll say two things about that. First, from a company standpoint, a big part of our journey was to have raised a lot of venture capital in the late 1990s when that was uh, on offer. It, was, it wasn't even something we really knew about when we started our company. And, and then we went through a process 10 years later of buying back all, all of our investment from our venture capital. That was, in some ways, very, very painful for us. It took a long time to do it, but we did it because, thankfully, because we started our company so young, we were at an age, you know, 15 years in, where we realized if we were able to buy this back, we could run this the way we really want mm-hmm. to with a very long-term perspective. So that's been, that's been a, a beautiful thing for us. And then from an investment standpoint, um, I guess I'll say our, our returns have been excellent, but I, but I really want to explain one or two reasons why to show that there are principles that make sense. One of them is to really look at the culture of the companies that you're investing in. Mm-hmm. If you're investing for just the next six months or a year, you're not really investing. Um, the way to make money investing is to find Starbucks or to find um, Amazon or to find um, Costco, to find these great companies and to just own shares of them like you would own a house. Let, let them run their business, and you just own the shares. And if one of the factors you have looking at it is, do I think I'd love to work there? Hmm. And does it look like people enjoy going to work there? And, and the better you get at kind of looking at organizations that way, the easier it is to find the big long-term winners. And, of course, a long-term winner at some point will be down 20%. So you'll feel like, oh, I must have made a mistake. I bought it at 100 Now it's at $77 a share. But, mm-hmm. but if you really develop... Um, the um, methodology of evaluating how well that organization is run for the people that work there, that $100 stock that went to 77 on average is going to be the stock that goes to 150 270 
um, twelve hundred, and all of a sudden you're looking and you've made fifteen times your money over ten years. Um, and so that's just fundamental to the way the Motley Fool invests. And so while while our returns have been awesome, I do think it's important for people to know that some of the inputs in our analysis or the primary ones are pretty straightforward, logical. It's just not the way that the financial media or uh, transactional financial services industry um, really teaches or guides people to think about business. That is so powerful as a way to think about what you do in um, both in, in your own company as well as at your investment strategy. And I have about 16 questions now based on what you just said, but I really want to stay focused on the issue of financial literacy, which you started out with, and that is, why is it, first of all, that we don't teach people in our society how to be financially literate, and how did that idea, and, and it's still true, uh, how did that idea emerge as one that you could somehow address? I think there are a lot of reasons for it, but I'll start by saying that I generally agree with the principle or with the belief that's been expressed at a number of conscious capitalist gatherings. That's a philosophy that we um, um, aspire to live up to, uh, conscious capitalism, something anyone can Google and read more about. But in general, um, in presentations at those gatherings, it's not unusual that somebody would cite how poor is the reputation of business in the in the popular media and mm-hmm. and let's say in uh, the latest Netflix series or the big screen movie that in general business is is kind of looked down upon and you're presenting fraud or greed or incompetence um, but there there isn't a lot there's there aren't a lot of stories dramatic films about the creation of a great organization it does happen occasionally but it's relatively rare and so for that reason I think the association with business with investing with money with capital um, it has a, a lot of uh, um, connection with greed, mm-hmm. and um, and so I, I think for those reasons, it's probably not an attractive subject, you know, at first glance for a school, a fifth grader to be learning about, or or um, a, a college freshman even. Um, although obviously, you start having business schools and um, you know business classes and econ classes, but we just we shy away from talking about personal financial issues because if you have a class of um, 25 uh, 13 year olds all learning about finance somebody might in that class may say well you know my family has like a million dollars right so there's like a a gap that emerges between a status distinction that could be uh, painful yes and and so So that's one of the reasons why we don't teach financial literacy is because it'll expose the status inequities in in the classroom and, and in our society you think that's... I think that's part. I think that's part of it, and I think it's just an uncomfortable sometimes in a personal subject. Mm-hmm. But then against that, it's also just not something that has been written into the textbooks. Um, you know, I, how many times did I calculate that train A leaving Philadelphia and going to um, <laughs> Newark would, and train B leaving, you know, New York City and going to Newark, and which one would get there? But if that uh-huh. that little math problem was about compound interest. Um, um, it's actually applicable. So, I, and and how how will we respond to that, or how how does that get um, how does that get uh, remedied, or or um, how do we teach that? Um, I, I think the Motley Fool needs to create and will create a foundation, and will really 
place an emphasis on helping anyone to get ready to invest, whether it's um, a 17-year-old that doesn't realize when they're 18 they're about to become the CEO of their own life financially, mm-hmm. um, or it's somebody who's 57 and hasn't really done any saving for retirement yet. So we as an organization, uh, I think above all, probably in the end our highest calling when looked back 25 years from now will be um, the work that we did um, to get people ready to invest. Um, and I think we just financially and from a business standpoint had to get to sustainability and mm-hmm. um, um, so so I'm optimistic about that. But we'll, we'll, there are a lot of great nonprofits and organizations out there that are doing things. It's just not unified and integrated for people. So that's and what you see is that's what you see is essential to what your legacy is going to be. I believe that's true. I know that um, my older brother and co-founder David feels that, and I've learned that he's. Uh, usually right about in his instincts, and so mm-hmm. I think that's true. And I and I guess I ultimately think that it really will be around applications that that there will be you know mobile applications that make the decisions clearer, that teach a little bit about the emotional side of that decision, and that help people with guardrails make better financial decisions. Now, so, so was this a part of the founding idea for for the Motley Fool? I mean, the only real founding ideas to was, wow, we might be able to have a full-time job doing this? <laughs> I mean, that's so awesome. So, I mean, I really think it was started with the fun of investing. Our um, father taught us that. Um, and then secondarily, wow, we, we, could, we could actually, this could be our work. Um, so with each five-year period that passes, we... We learned from Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks, who was at one point an investor in the Motley Fool years ago when we had venture investors. And mm-hmm. he, he said something, a few things that I've never forgotten, and one of them is um, you, you have to decide whether the problems that your company will face are interesting to you. Because if they aren't, it will either grind you down or you will have to abandon at some point. But, mm-hmm. but the dream is to find a zone that you're working on that's really endlessly fascinating because you will you will face more problems and larger problems every five years than mm. than uh, than you had in the past. So it'll get harder, um, and you just have to decide if you really love it. And we got lucky. We we found our way into an area that that's has, has so many opportunities to get smarter about what's happening in the world. So. Uh, I want to just drill a little further down into the importance of financial literacy for our society and for individuals. Um, It it may seem obvious, but uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on why, uh, how you see financial literacy as something that's really an essential aspect of what it means for individuals to live a, uh, a life that is in harmony with what they care about. Maybe I'll remind everyone of the guidance we get when we're about to take off in an airplane and we hear if we're there with uh, children or mm-hmm. anyone next to us in the seats around us, that if something were to go wrong, um, the, the first step is to put the oxygen mask on yourself. Because at that point, you'll then be able to help others. Um, and your instinct might be to help, you know, particularly your child mm-hmm. next to you if something's going wrong and get them. But that's not going to provide the, the sustainable help that people around you are going to need. And I think that that's um, right at the center of financial independence, of 
of um, putting yourself in a position where um, even even early in life, even if it's only in very small ways, maybe you have student loans, maybe you, maybe you're not being paid as much as you'd uh, like to be, and whatever your situation, you can take a step towards having more control, and that mm-hmm. usually starts with getting spending under control. And and I think that a great course, actually, I I had. I was taught this um, in graduate school at the University of Montana in Missoula in a, in a really great class. The professor laid out just how inexpensively you could live. Mm. You know, if, you, if you went all rice, beans, and vegetables, if you, you, know, if you, you narrowed all your spending down, it's, it's really incredible how inexpensively one could live. And that was, that was more than 20 years ago. Now um, there, there are a lot of technologies that make living potentially less and less expensive, and certainly being healthy physically, mentally, and working on that mm-hmm. reduces long-term costs as well. And so I think a lot of it just starts mm-hmm. with, um, can, I, can I spend um, less than I'm earning? And then I, then I start seeing, ooh, I'm building up choices in my life. I now have an opportunity. And for some people, one of the most important first opportunities is to say, I, I don't want to do this type of work anymore. I want to do this oh. type of work. Mm-hmm. We had a, a, a professor come speak in our office named uh, Raj Peshawaria, who was, I believe, at one time the chief learning officer at Morgan Stanley and at Coca-Cola. And um, we asked him, out of those tens of thousands of employees you had, what slice of that group was the happiest in your, in your observation? He said, it's funny you ask that because there is a very small sliver. It's not not a large um, segment of yeah. the population, but the small sliver that is happiest is the group of people that took a pay cut to do something they really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And, and so that comes out of financial independence. If you, if you feel you could do that, um, I think you start to see the beauty of choice, opportunity, and control um, based on having a measure of financial independence. Well, creating harmony or integration, uh, or as most people call it, balance, uh, I don't. Uh, but you know, uh, the term that, that most people use to describe the relationship between work and the rest of life, uh, so much of uh, it is about uh, conscious choices and control. Uh, so re- reduction in spending, that's where you start? I believe so. Is that, I mean- is that principle uno, the, the most important? To me, that is, because, of course, we've read the stories or heard or know somebody in our life who has a very high salary but is living beyond their means. Uh, and that, 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 is, that is a more difficult situation than somebody who is making less, um, far less, but is able to live within their means. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the second step is then to realize the savings that I have should be getting a better rate of return than 1% sitting in the bank. I mean, the bank is taking that and you know, lending that money out, let's say, to credit card borrowers at, at 16%, and the bank is paying 1%. So wow. that, that 15 percentage point gap in there is why banks, <laughs> why bankers drive nice cars. Um, That's a big fat margin for not doing much. <laughs> it's true. Once you realize, I'm not going to borrow at 16%. That's not a good idea. And I'm also not going to sit my savings at 1%. I should be able to do better than that. Mm-hmm. And that kind of begins the journey of learning how markets work and what does it mean to own a mutual fund or to, to buy shares of a company and who, who's done the best out there and why have they 
succeeded? What are the what are the top five principles of great of great investing? And I'll just name one of them, which is Buffett has said that Warren Buffett has said this, and it's true of Motley Fool data as well. Going back 25 years, if we had never sold any investment we had ever made in 25 years, we would be, we would have far better returns because what you don't want to do is worry about the short term, have a lot of transactional costs, and Mm -hmm. miss the big winner that you once had in your portfolio. Think of the people who decided in 2004, after they doubled their money, hmm, this would be a good time to sell Amazon. Mm -hmm. And uh, since then, it's up a few hundred times in value. So so in general, the the super long-term orientation and taking your savings and investing it in an index fund from Vanguard or in stocks and just owning them for very long periods of time and letting them perform for you is is uh, the important second step. And yet people who do see the news become anxious when they see, you know, the the Dow Jones industrials dropping radically or just gyrations in the market. So how do you how do you advise investors uh, and, and, and I'll stop asking the investor <laughs> interesting, interesting no, questions uh, and get more into your company's culture, but how do you help people with the anxieties of, of risk uh, in, in the Motley Fool approach? We've started to use tools, checklists, and survey tools to guide people to understand the principles of winning uh, with the Motley Fool. And we're the first ones to say, this is the way we do it. There are other ways to win. But if you're going to use the Motley Fool, you should at least know how we uh, would do it. So in other words, if we're selling you a, a, um, a, a large piece of me- you know, mechanical equipment that, that you could hurt yourself with, let, let's make sure you understand the rules and the instruction manual. So here are a few of our rules. The first rule is that you, you, you need to have a diversified portfolio. And I would say mm-hmm. that would be a couple index funds or more than 25 stocks. And second is you need to hold all of them for at least five years. If you, if you need the money less than five years, don't invest it. You're not going to make a lot. You'll just be gambling. Um, instead, just the real growth comes when you double your money every five years or seven years or nine years. And that doubling just happens throughout your lifetime. Um, so that, that's principle number two. And then principle number three is um, on average, the market will fall 20% at some point every four years. And so since we're saying hold for at least five years, you will get that 20% decline. So if you have a $100,000 portfolio at some point, it could be down to 80000 Now, hopefully it'll be growing, and then it'll fall mm-hmm. 20%. But it's, you're going to get the 20% decline. And so you really need to have one of two perspectives when that happens in order to succeed. The first is it doesn't matter. You're maybe not even paying attention to it, or you're, you're not acting on that decline. And the second is, oh, wow prices are lower. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of good businesses out here. I believe in the economy. I like to, all the innovation and entrepreneurship that's happening around the world. So I'll add money when it goes down. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you want to be either, if you can be contrary like that, that's wonderful. If you can't, just, just be indifferent to it mm-hmm. and, and know that it's going to happen every four years somewhere in there. Could, could be happening right now. We're down 7% from the highs now. Is it going to go down another 13 percentage points? Perhaps. Um, but either be buying or just ignore that. And the fifth principle? Um, uh, you know, it, in the ideal, this one is less of a mandate, but in the ideal, you're investing in things that interest you. Because if you put yourself in position to learn, um, then, you're, then you're 
the probabilities that your performance improves over the next 10 and 20 years goes up. If you're just putting the money away somewhere, you're not going to learn. But I also recognize that this isn't necessarily an area where people are saying, you know, I'm, I'm very excited to, you know, read financial statements. Or, but, but I do think that you could learn about company cultures. I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. Stu, that, you know, using culture as a filter. Well, they're one of the best money managers I have met in the 25 years of The Motley Fool is a guy in Austin, Texas, who manages quite a bit of money and has done extremely well. And he will tell you that his entire, virtually his entire approach is just studying the top two or three leaders at the company. Hmm. He's, he's essentially saying, these are like the airline pilots. Like, let's make sure they're really awesome because they're the ones flying the plane. Like, they built the plane. They're, you know, they know how to run the plane. They do all the maintenance on the plane. They are mapping the chart. Like, I'm not going to pretend that I, I, I'm able to know or figure out all these things better than the top three people at the company. So why don't I just learn if they're super high-quality leaders Mm-hmm. Um, if they have a total leadership plan, you know, and and um, and and let me put my money with them and learn from them, make them my college professors, make my investment portfolio my 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 next my next degree that I'm um, that I'm going for in life. So so I think that that's the that's the final principle is ideally you're investing at least some of your money into things that are really interesting to you and you want to learn more about. Your commitment to learning, your sort of scholarly, your joyful scholarly approach to, to, to your work uh, is really so clear. Uh, and it's not surprising that you've been successful because of your interest in creating, um, or just following that idea in how you become smarter over time as investors. How does, it, how does that concept of creating an environment in which you're constantly learning, especially from your mistakes, how does that filter into how you manage your company, your own company's culture? How does it affect the kinds of policies and practices and attitudes towards your people? Well, the first thing you want to do is to try and create as much autonomy and freedom for the people that are that you're working with as possible, mm-hmm. um, because uh, the more they're out there fulfilling their their potential, the, the more rapidly you can learn. Um, and I think the second thing for us is to try and we try and mandate as little as possible. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, we have our values, we have principles that we care very deeply about, but but woven into those principles are you know um, the, the the idea that not everyone is the same, um, and so we're not mm-hmm. going to say that um, showing up early in the morning is more valuable than than working late at night. Um, and we're not going to say that being somebody who shows up to meetings on time is necessarily better than somebody who who <laughs> who does a poor job of showing up on time. I mean, there. I, I don't want to say that there are no standards, but, mm-hmm. but I do want to say some people um, love ideas. Some people love execution. Some people love building systems. Some people love having very meaningful, open, you know, conversations at work. Other people would prefer to never have that happen. <laughs> um, and so the challenge, the fun challenge, mm-hmm. is to try and create an environment where everyone can thrive. And, and, and the only real guiding, you know, North Star is, um, you know, this is, our, this is what our mission is as a company. We're not, we're not a baking company. We're not a sports company. We're not a legal law firm. We do have the mission that we're on. But number two is the golden rule. And just let's make sure that every stakeholder and everyone that we work with, you know, um, feels cared about. Um, and that's easy to say in a conversation like this. And then in practice, yes. it's beautifully challenging. There's, there's a beautiful complexity to trying to get 
so many different people all integrated and working together towards a common goal. So where have you found your greatest success in doing that and your greatest failure? I'd say our greatest success is in um, really in giving extra feedback and spending extra time with people who are really performing well in the, you know, in the organization because you may think they just want a paycheck, but in general, they really want time with other leaders and other people who care deeply about what's happening. And it's, it's easy for a company to get into a mode where it's problem solving and it's, it's giving feedback to people who aren't, it's not working out. And, and there are very good things about those intentions, but it turns out in our experience that when you spend more time with people who are thriving, other people see the behaviors hmm. that, um, that lead to thriving and flourishing in our, and, and we're not leaving fools behind with that. We're just making sure that the people who are really in high impact positions um, feel cared about, um, are getting the feedback they need to get better, um, and, and can set the example and then provide that guidance to others. So, and that was a reversal for us about 10 years ago, and that's been a very good thing. I'd say, where, where, have, we, where have we run into the most problems? Well, before you get there, tell me what led to the reversal. Uh, we had on our, uh, on our board of directors a man named Steve Kerr, who was the chief learning officer at General Electric. Sure, I know Steve. Yes, and Steve asked me... On the uh, folly of rewarding A while hoping for B is his classic contribution to the management literature. And what a wonderful article that everyone should read and what a wonderful title, given that yeah. the Motley Fool wasn't even formed when he, when he did that work. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and Steve asked me, um, you know, who gets paid more at the Motley Fool, the highest performers or, or people who are not performing? I said, okay, high performers do. And he said, who gets more feedback? And I thought about it, and I, I said, well, I think low performers, because we care about mm-hmm, everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, you know, that's, that's great from the heart, but from the mind and from inspiring others, um, you actually want to really give feedback to your highest performers. You really want to show them. And you, you don't want to starve other people of that at all. It's just um, you want to set the example. So Steve, mm. Steve really, really helped us uh, think, think differently about probably a dozen different things that were very, very big changes for our company. Brilliant mind uh, and management theorist. So where did you screw up most royally, Tom, and and what did you learn from that in terms of trying to create an environment which people can really thrive, be autonomous, uh, and, and, you know, bring their best selves to your work? I think it was in the sort of high-level surveying that we were doing of our of our fool, foolish employees and and getting really great aggregate numbers winning the glass door awards and feeling um, satisfied um, then a tool came along and I'm sure there are other companies offering this but we use a tool um, from a company called culture amp and what culture amp allows us to do is to survey everyone who works at the motley fool and then have the data sliced and diced in endless an endless number of ways, um, never smaller than groups of five so that people's right. anonymity is preserved. Mm-hmm. And the net result of that was we began to find things like people who've been with us more than 10 years aren't as happy as people who've been with us less than three years. Oh, well, why is that? Um, women do not feel that their voice or opinion is, is heard hmm. to the same degree that men do. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's, that's terrible. Why is that happening? Um, so previously we had aggregate numbers that looked great, 
um, the average you know level of engagement or satisfaction at work unfortunately is around 25 or 30 percent of people at you know organizations in the U.S. and around the world and we were at 75 or 80 percent so we felt like well we've kind of checked this box and let's mm-hmm. focus in other areas and then when you actually get into the niche zones you start to see that there's so much opportunity and that something that Tom Peters another management theorist said theorist said when he came to our office started to ring true that when you get above 150 or 200 employees most organizations start kind of treating employees as maybe numbers maybe mm-hmm based in teams or the projects they're on, the division that they work in, but not really as an individual that has, you know, maybe a half dozen very key factors that can be improved to make their work life better. And so I think the tools, the move towards surveying and towards mm-hmm. building tools to help guide each individual um, was, was, a, was a big change for us, and we, we found a lot of flaws in our culture uh, when, when, when that data came back. And you learn from it, as, as you, you do with everything, it seems, uh, that commitment to reflecting on your experience, what's working, what's not, uh, and, and using that. How does this management philosophy, uh, continually investing in learning, uh, affect people's lives beyond work, those that work at The Motley Fool? Um, maybe a few ways. I'll say that I think the first thing is it's probably hard to really build a learning organization if um, you're you're only thinking a year or two forward, and if you are in, in an organization where that's going to be sold, um, or that you're not going to work there for a long time. So mm-hmm. I think the first thing for founders and executives to, or leaders to really think about is you know how long do we want to do this. And then the second thing is to ask people, to, to ask that of themselves, and to, and to say, we, we can't really spend a tremendous amount of time if you think you're going to just, just be here a year or two, or four years even. But, but if, you, if you think you might be somebody who's going to be here 5, 10, 15 years, and it's not like we're going and, and, and asking people straight up you know, individually, but just to create thematically the idea that we're a learning organization, we're trying to become a lot smarter 10 years from now than we are right now. Uh, we're going to be here. Uh, we love what we're doing. Um, and that's not every organization. So, so we kind of gain an advantage by, by, by having found ourselves with a lot of luck to where we are. And, and now that we're here, we can really emphasize that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I think, how does that extend beyond? Um, well, there, there are a variety of ways. I mean, I'll just give a few, maybe one or two fun examples. One, we have a, a program called Bookie Monster. Um, at the pool, and that is any any business or investing related book. We we we'll cover the cost without um, asking questions. So anybody who just wants to go out and buy Leading the Life You Want or Total <laughs> Leadership, or wants to buy uh, excellent choices, on, <laughs> or a book on distressed debt, or uh-huh. a book on how to start your own business. I mean, we're going to cover that, mm-hmm. and and um, and 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 so so that way. And then I think the second thing. That all, I mean, um, there, there, maybe I feel like I have five answers to that, but I don't want to. I don't want to give the extended answer. I'll say. I'll say this: We have somebody whose full time job. I would recommend this to any company, no yeah. matter the size. Um, a part time job if you're smaller, a full time job if you're larger. Their full time job is just to contact people outside of our company that we want to learn from. And mm. so, if you if you had if you had a six person team and you started a new business. Um, hire hire a, a temp or 
or assign to some member of your team each month, you're the one that's on to do this, and just give them a list of people that you think are really knowledgeable in your industry or really thoughtful about some specific area of what you're doing in your business, finance, say, um, and just email or make the phone call and ask if that person will have a 15-minute phone call to answer questions or will come by your office next time they're in town. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and the success rate, I, I project, for anyone is going to be north of 33%. So, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe almost half the time you'll hear no, so what? That's fine. The other half the time you'll hear somebody go, sure, I'll give you 10 minutes. And, and that 10 minutes that somebody gives you, let's say, the head of customer service at Zappos gave us 30 minutes. This is about 10 years ago. Our customer service team, our member services team, was so pumped when they came to work that day. Mm-hmm. They had all their questions organized, and they just used that 30 or 45 minutes maximally. And we ended up with two amazing ideas that we deployed in the team. And, and that can happen everywhere in your, in your organization. That could happen at universities. I think universities should be doing the same thing. I think that University of Pennsylvania should have somebody or some group of people that full-time takes student requests, of just anyone, hey, you read a great fiction book and you want to talk to that author, or hey, this person's running the Bank of Nigeria, they're chair, they're the chair of the Bank of Nigeria, who, by the way, is an incredible woman, and you, you read an article about her and you want to contact her, it, you're going to end up with, let's say, a 33 to 50% success rate on at least getting a phone call. And then beyond that, people will start visiting you, wanting mm-hmm. to come by your office, wanting to be a part of it, wanting to join your board of directors, or wanting to invest in your company or, or come to work at your company. And we've, mm-hmm. we've been blown away by uh, how many people have signed up to do something with the Motley Fool simply because they had a really great time in the first 15 or 30-minute phone call that we had with them. And that's, that's available to everyone to pull that off. Tom, with respect to work and the rest of life, how do you uh, handle that set of challenges in terms of integrating the different parts of your life? What's... What's most prominent in your thinking about your approach? I mean, one of the things I remind myself is if I really love what I'm doing, um, don't I want to be alive as long as possible to enjoy <laughs> as much of that um, as possible? And so my health should always come first. Um, no matter what's going on, no matter how painful or uh, frustrating or difficult uh, things are, I should always be um, taking care of myself on, you know, uh, on a daily basis, I, I've always liked the criticism of the U.S. in saying, "Hey, if you need emergency surgery, you're you're in the right country." Uh, but if you need mm-hmm. daily care and maintenance, we don't have a great track record of that in the U.S. And so, why not counterbalance that with your own effort and really study and think through what are the things, whether it's meditation, going for a walk, how you eat, your social connections, the time, mm-hmm. the, the sort of things that you have have spent so much of your work, um, you know expressing and thinking about, Stu, mm-hmm. um, to, to, to take, take the time and give yourself the time uh, to do that. And then I, I also, I mean, I really subscribe to the, to the integrated view. Uh, so for me, it's not, it's not always trying to separate one, one from the other, although I see benefits in it. But I'll give an example, which is that in my apartment, and I do live very close to our office, <laughs> um, in my apartment I have, I have whiteboard paint. Um, so my walls... <laughs> few oh, of my wow. walls have, have whiteboards. Uh-huh. And for me, that has been so great um, to stand up, walk around, not to sit in front of a device, um, but to stand up, have my ideas, be able to invite somebody over and talk through a problem. Hmm. Uh, so, so there is work going on when I'm at home, and uh-huh. I, don't know, I don't know what the doctors and scientists and experts would say about that, but I will <laughs> say if you're a creative person, 
a whiteboard at home um, is a is a real uh, and and for me it's the actual paint on the wall. So I don't yeah, know yeah, yeah. I've never I'll heard build. of that. That's a, that's um, a cool yeah, idea. I've, I've I've kind of taken that to an extreme. Next time you're in in the DC area, Stu, you need to come over and right. I would like you to evaluate. <laughs> I might have some questions for life. you about that, Tom. Um, you know how how that fits with your uh, your commitment to caring for your your uh, your health. How does it fit? Um, it fits because um, when when I don't get my ideas out, mm-hmm. then then I, I they 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 bottle up inside of me. I think I probably my immune system is probably hurt by that. Um, I don't want to overstate it, but when I when I get my ideas out and then I organize my ideas, I'm also much more helpful um, at our company. When I when I if I come in and the wheel of ideas is spinning, and I'm 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 you know I'm excited about this. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about this too. And could we try that? That can be pretty overwhelming. But if instead I've I've had that enthusiastic creative process happen mm-hmm. um, away from work, and then I've organized it a little bit, and then I bring it in and kind of talk through it in a in a more deliberate way, um, more focused perhaps. Yes, it's been. I think it's been. I think it it's beneficial to my health, and it's very beneficial to the health of my team. Mm-hmm which, of course, you care a lot about. Tom, there's a question I've been asking all my guests this year um, that I'd like to ask you as well, because I think it's just a really important uh, theme to be resounding in our conversations, and that is about compassion. So let me ask, how do you bring compassion to your working life? Mm. Well, I'll... I'll maybe speak through a story or two. Today is the day, one year after one of our most uh, beloved employees died of cancer on on this day a year ago. And um, I think that when an an organization um, has that experience together, um, what Sam Davidson did is in his work with us, in the time that he was with us, was he really put into perspective why we're here. He was very passionate about philanthropy and about financial literacy and about having fun and about experimentation, not taking ourselves too seriously. I mean, in a way, Sam was the, the fool at the Motley Fool, mm-hmm. um, the one that could tell the truth and do so in a delighting way rather than a divisive way. And and so th- those experiences, um, they, 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 they make us... They, they bring greater enlightenment in the, in the pain that we go through. And, and so in a, um, I, I'll, I'll give another example at our company of something that we do that I really admire. The complicated zone of severance when somebody isn't working out at your organization, that's a time when you really want to be compassionate and caring and supportive of that person, do whatever you can to help them, because the team members and other employees are really looking at how you treat people when things don't work sure out. Sure so that's a that's another zone. But Stu, thank you so much for this conversation. I'm I'm really uh, honored to have been a part of it. Oh, Tom, uh, we really appreciate. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us about your remarkable company. Uh, tell us uh, just briefly how can listeners find out more about the Motley Fool? Maybe even Fool. apply for a job there. <laughs> uh, well, Fool.com would be you're coming to our site and you're just clicking around and reading and just search for the 13 steps to investing foolishly on our site, and that'll get you started with how we think. And jobs.fool.com is where we're hiring, and we're doing quite a bit of hiring this year. 
Um, I think our company is going to grow almost 33% in size this year. So we're, we're wow. very excited to bring a lot of new fools in, and hopefully um, we'll have some listeners this evening that will end up joining us. So that's jobs.fool.com. And is it is it all in the D.C. area, or are you diversifying geographically as well? Um, we have a lot of remote workers. We have an office in, in just out in Denver. Um, we have offices in Singapore and Hong Kong and U.K. and Germany and Australia and and um, Tokyo, and so we're hiring in those, in all of those areas. Fantastic. Uh, but yes, the most the most of our hires actually will be coming into the D.C. area. Tom. Congratulations on your remarkable uh, growth and continued success. Uh, Again, thanks for being here. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tom Gardner, CEO of The Motley Fool, and that it provoked you, prodded you to come up with some new ways, some doable ways of thinking about how you manage your money as a way to find greater freedom and control in your life. So here's a challenge for you, an invitation. Consider taking a small step toward creating more choices for yourself by taking stock, so to speak, of your own financial portfolio, or even better, by getting some new information about and control over how you spend. What can you cut? And if you were to eliminate that expense, How do you think that would make you feel? What might doing so allow you to do that you now cannot? Hmm. Finding freedom by lowering your costs. Let me know if you try this. Or what other ideas might have occurred to you while listening to this conversation. I'd love to hear from you. And you can get in touch with me directly, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, Or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to Work and Life Podcast. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit TotalLeadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.